Welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. This week's guest has a weighty responsibility, helping keep over 500 resident theaters across North America informed, connected, and serving audiences as well as possible. Which was obviously not easy during the worst of the pandemic. From costume designers to stagehands to actors and directors, the last many months have scuttled the best laid plans of some of the most imaginative among us. We'll see where things stand as the vaccination rate continues to grow and hope that we won't remain limited to screens for access to the performing arts in 2022. I was traveling in state one weekend for my nephew's graduation and I went into a store. It was just a, you know, a bodega and there was a little sticker that said, Dear Evan Hansen on the cash register. And I said, do you know this play? And they said, yes, we went to New York to see the play. And the woman who was running the store said, my son is studying the play in his high school class, and they've been assigned a journaling project around the play. And I said, oh, that's really exciting. That's cool. My organization published that play. And she said, oh, well, he has it. And her son came out and opened his backpack and pulled out Dear Evan Hansen, of course, the version that we had published. That's the value and the importance of theater right there. That's Teresa Eyring, since 2007, the executive director and CEO of Theater Communications Group, TCG, the National Organization for Theater. Founded in 1961, TCG's mission today is to lead for a just and thriving theater ecology. In addition to serving its direct community of over 500 resident theaters, 200 business and university affiliates with more than 13,000 individual members, TCG is the largest independent trade publisher of dramatic literature in North America, with 18 Pulitzers on its book list. Prior to joining TCG, Teresa spent more than 20 years as an executive in theaters across the United States, from Washington to Philadelphia and Minneapolis. She holds a BA in International Relations from Stanford University and an MFA in Theater Administration from the Yale School of Drama. She's on the boards of the Performing Arts Alliance and the Upper Manhattan Empowerment Zone, is Vice President for the Americas of the International Theater Institute Worldwide, and serves on the Advisory Council of SMU Data Arts. So, Teresa, the pandemic obviously stilled the world of theater for a protracted period. And now you're looking to rebound. Give us a sense about where things stand and what some of the means to get back to something resembling normal there are. Well, there are communities across the country where theaters are banding together to institutionalize similar policies. So among those policies are vaccinations being required and mask wearing being required. And in some cases, they are also limiting the number of seats they will sell. I was just at a show at the Wilma Theater in Philadelphia, and they had 50% capacity by design. So those are some of the things. And I think theaters communicating regularly with audiences about what their policies are very clearly, um, having them available on their websites, making them available through all their communications is helping. Ticket sales are at the core of the operating model of theaters, and the pandemic obviously ended that for a while. What's the plan to get back on your feet as a field? That's complicated. When you think about, for example, all the Broadway theaters and 
their viability is reliant on them being able to sell all those seats or at a high capacity. And then in addition to that, some of the changes that are being made right now have to do with HVAC systems, upgrading them so that the air filtration is at a higher level. Some of the design is in the actual experience. So getting rid of intermission so people aren't hanging around in a lobby together or standing in line, big long lines at the bathroom together. It sounds like there really has to be a rethinking of the business model of theaters with ticket sales being a bit wobbly. Are donors part of the solution? Donors have been very generous in, yeah. in many cases. That may not sustain over time. So this is the time for theaters to be looking ahead and theaters and, and all performing arts, frankly, and think about how their business model will shift, what size will they be, what kind of programming can they sustain over yeah. time? So yes, I think there is going to be an evolution of the yeah. business model. And by the way, it wasn't necessarily working before the pandemic. <laughs> so it's an opportunity to change and transform and rethink how this business works. And forgive me for asking to follow up, but when you say things weren't working before the pandemic, do you mean cash wasn't coming in as costs required? In the theater field, I can't speak for the other performing arts disciplines, but in the theater field, there was a working capital shortage. Mm -hmm. So most organizations, whether small or large, were dealing with liquidity issues. Um, and and I, I want to not overstate that in a way that makes it sound like all theaters were in crisis, but there definitely was not enough cash across the field and in some organizations that had reached critical levels. Additionally, audiences were pretty flat, if not in slow decline. Again, that's based on TCG's research and we do fiscal research every year and we look at these things. That's across the field on average. So it doesn't mean every single theater is having that experience, but we were hearing that there was quite a bit of stress in the field around financial health audiences mm -hmm. and more. And mm -hmm. at that time, immediate pre-pandemic, we thought we were looking at a correction in the economy. <laughs> yeah. So theaters were starting to plan for a possible recession. They got a pandemic instead and some elements of recession, of course. You mentioned gathering data. A big part of gathering data is the informal gatherings of professionals who trade anecdotes that lead to studies that lead to reporting. Are you planning an in-person convening in the coming months? Yes. Well, one of the things that we had a crash course in at TCG, as did many others, is how to convene virtually. Yeah. And we were planning to do that before the pandemic. We had started talking about whether we should virtually convene at least every other year just for accessibility so more people could be with us, also to lower our carbon footprint because we're very concerned about the climate crisis. So we've been all virtual. Now we're doing a little more, some virtual, some not, and some hybrid. November 13th, we have our first live convening since the shutdown. It's relatively small and it will be here in New York. And what we're concentrating on is what is, we're looking at a piece of research that was done by the, the artist and leader, Jesse Cameron Alec. And he did the study uh, in collaboration with Sundance. 
and it's looking at what do artists think should happen after the pandemic? And he, he talked to 70 different artists, playwrights, actors, designers, and his conclusions, he had four conclusions. One is collective leadership. Artists are interested in looking at collective leadership versus a complete hierarchical one person, one artistic leader makes all the decisions model. Mm -hmm. They're also interested in exploring holistic support for artists because artists during the pandemic did not all fare terribly well because most of them are freelancers and didn't have institutional support in all cases. Um, a third is hybrid futures. How do we look at what we've learned about virtual programming and hybridity and take that forward? And then a fourth conclusion is really about how do we continue these spaces for ideation in the field where artists can really come together and be problem solvers. And we're talking about all of that on November 13th. So I'm excited, but it's the max capacity for it is 100 people. And we're honoring all of the different uh, safety protocols that are recommended by the conference center where we'll be. When you mention supporting artists, how about at the beginning point of a career? How do you support emerging artists in the discipline? There are a number of ways that we support emerging professionals. We will have our live national conference in Pittsburgh, and that's coming up in June of 2022. And historically, when we have our conferences, we try to bring in as many emerging practitioners as we can. So often we'll invite high school uh, theaters, high school and teen councils to come. Usually that works out to be about 20 people total, but it's wonderful to have them there because they are so curious and they're willing to speak their minds mm -hmm. and they just learn so much about the field. But then those who are uh, in college and training programs or recent graduates, or even have been in the field for a few years, we also have opportunities for them to attend conferences, which is a great way to learn about the field and also to make contacts and we've also really committed ourselves to professional development of the next generation of leaders of color. So we have a program that's called Rising Leaders of Color. And we have one that's specific in New York, but we also do that same program in the community where our national conference is held when we hold it live. So those are a few. And then we are a grant maker. We partner with foundations and corporations sometimes. And we create programs often that are about leadership development or artistic development. And one of those that we actually just got a grant from the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation for 1.6 million, which is specifically to support BIPOC and BIPOC-led, Black Indigenous, people of color-led organizations that also were founded for and by BIPOC. So that will come with it a significant amount of professional development that really will be more multi-generational, actually. In addition to the Doris Duke grant, you recently received a million dollars from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation to support TCG Books. What are your plans in that regard? That's a great question. And I'll tell you, we are so grateful to these foundations for their confidence in us and for their willingness to continue to partner in a big way. So TCG's book program is a vital and very large part mm -hmm. of what we do as an organization. During the pandemic, 
we we had to reduce our staff because of just a number of our income streams reduced. And that included reducing the staff of the book program. Now, one of the great surprises was that while people couldn't attend plays, they were reading plays. We sold as many plays as we would, or almost as many as we would in a normal year. The funding from Mellon is going to allow us to restaff. So we'll be able to bring on some additional editors, which will help us with a backlog of plays that need to be edited and then printed and distributed. It's also allowing us to do this truly exciting new program that is called Illuminations. And this is an idea that was brought to us by the playwright, Brandon Jacobs Jenkins. He named for us that there were a number of plays by Black playwrights that were quite impactful in their time, but either had never received a standalone trade edition or had been maybe have been published but weren't in distribution anymore. And he came up with a list of about 10 plays, and he's essentially curating this new series for us. The first one out is Trouble in Mind by Alice Childress. That is receiving a production at the Roundabout coming up soon. That will be the first one. Douglas Turner Ward's play Day of Absence is on the list. We're excited about that. I'm on the advisory board of Columbia University Press, and we're constantly thinking about the future of publishing, obviously. You're saying you think there's a lot ahead in the world of theater and publishing. I think it's going to continue. For books and plays, our publisher often says we're in a golden age of playwriting. And there are many women and BIPOC writers and trans and non-binary writers who are just writing plays that are different and exciting and, and, and people are reading them. And I feel that that's only going to continue and grow. But we have a, a responsibility as well to continue to make this work as relevant as possible to people and to their lives. And the way that we distribute right now, you talked about early practitioners. We have a, distri a distribution company that's called Consortium. And part of the selling process is selling to colleges and universities. So drama programs purchase those plays for course adoptions or students purchase them because they're reading them in class. I have this really one great story, which is there was a musical, which you probably heard about called Dear Evan Hansen. Mm -hmm. And Dear Evan Hansen was on Broadway. And it, it started actually in one of our member theaters, but it was on Broadway and we published the play. They came to us and said, we really want this book to be published and ready to sell in the lobby. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we, we published it and we went through like six printings in a year. And I was traveling in state one weekend for my nephew's graduation. And I went into a store. It was just a, you know, a bodega and there was a little sticker that said, Dear Evan Hansen, on the cash register. And I said, do you know this play? And they said, yes, we went to New York to see the play. And the woman who was running the store said, my son is studying the play in his high school class, and they've been assigned a journaling project around the play. And I said, oh, that's really exciting. That's cool. My organization published that play. And she said, oh, well, he has it. And her son came out and opened his backpack and pulled out Dear Evan Hansen, of course, the version that we had published. 
that's the value and the importance of theater right there. You've mentioned grants and foundation support. How about individuals? How important are they in the future of how TCG flourishes and theaters for that matter? For TCG, we have a number of individual donors who have been very supportive throughout the pandemic and I believe will continue to support our work because they see the impact of a national organization that is able to bring people together, build relationships, build movements, address systemic issues within the field. Um, and so I'm, I'm hopeful about the prospect for individual giving for TCG. And I think for the rest of the theater field as well, in part because there is a, a sense and, and it's grown during the pandemic, even though theaters were closed, people understood even more clearly why it's important to have these institutions in their communities, how much life they bring, how much intersection there is between the arts organizations and other local businesses, what they're doing in the education space as well. So people missed the existence of live theater and other live performing arts. I think that's true. And understand that it has to be supported. The other thing is, for people who have investments, this was, has actually been a very good time. So some philanthropists have more to give. So we've touched on philanthropists and their interest, but what about Gen Z, who are often portrayed as haplessly screen-addicted? Are they interested in live theater? Yes. Not all, <laughs> but I used to run a theater for young audiences, as you know, and I saw kids from, well, age zero <laughs> to 20 and beyond attending theater on a regular basis and loving it. And I think sometimes I think that young people are not given as much access to great performing arts as they should be. I think they are also marginalized in our arts ecosystem. When you think about New York, for example, the new Victory Theater is remarkable, but it's really the only game in town in terms of a major theater that's dedicated to work for young audiences. But if you go to that theater, you will see little kids, you'll see you know, 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds sitting in those seats, leaning in to the live experience. And I, there's a futurist who I spoke with once who said, the more high-tech we become, the more high-touch we become because we're still human. And yes, we could spend all day in front of a computer, in front of a cell phone, watching Netflix, but there's still a craving for human touch. And that's what live performing arts bring. I was just at the first live event I attended in the beginning to be post-pandemic world was an outdoor collaboration between the New York Philharmonic and the National Black Theater. National Black Theater is based in New York, also in Harlem. And it was an outdoor event where there were performances and the New York Phil performed in a very chamber orchestra format. And everybody was there, little kids, adults, grandparents, dogs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's where you see that people of all ages really do love being together convening, commuting, and experiencing art. So I feel hopeful about it. It's just 
how do young people, A, have access to it? It can't just be through school field trips. What's arts education look like? How is theater being brought into communities to connect with young people? How are they being invited in? You know, it's all those questions. So I don't know. I can't predict how big the audience will be in the future, but we have underserved young people. Over 20 years ago, Rem Kulhas co-authored a book about shopping and its transformation in part through the internet and all the ways in which consumers behave differently today. I'm wondering about the world of sports, where people are now returning, and whether there are any lessons to be learned in how they approach a mass audience that might have some lessons for the world of theater. First of all, people are very aware of what's happening with the teams because for the most part, they're broadcast, especially professional sports, but also college sports. Uh, so there's, there's a sense of connection. And also, I think some of the sports teams have just done an extraordinary job of marketing <laughs> mm -hmm. and getting the word out and creatively and making the experience. In some cases, the experience is exactly what it, it's just going to see the game. And while you're watching the game, you're going to eat some hot dogs. There are some teams that have come up with more creative ways of engaging their fans while they're in the stadium. So I think it's a combination of those things. It's the awareness combined with really good communications and marketing. Part of that is surely the world of sports embrace of digital innovation with different forms of augmented reality. Is that something the theater world is experiencing as well? I am not seeing a large amount of digital innovation in theaters themselves. Mm -hmm. There are some who are experimenting with augmented reality. I haven't experienced it in a theater yet. However, we are going to ex experiment with augmented reality at our upcoming live event for TCG, our convening on November 13th. I think what's, what's interesting to me is the way that theaters embraced the digital world during the pandemic, because there were a number of different ways that they showed up in virtual space. Initially, theaters were trying to work with Zoom, and there were a few designers, like set designers who, and, and sound and light designers, who figured out how to make Zoom a cool place to go for theater. Yeah. So there was that. But also some theaters that just took it into virtual space and digital, digital space in a way that was engaging, where the art itself was at a very high level of quality and where the consistency of their presence made them succeed. And I want to give you a couple examples. The Dallas Black Dance Theater hit it out of the park. In the way that they showed up for audiences from almost the beginning of the pandemic, they had a program that was every other Saturday night and it was online. They brought some, in some cases, they had programming from their archive or they had live programming that they live streamed. But there was always something really interesting. Sometimes it would be combined with a conversation with the artist and they charged for it. I think it was like $35 or $30. And I went often because I knew that it was, I knew it was happening. I knew it was going to be exciting. And I knew that it was going to make me feel really connected to that company. So that was one example. The other was the Wilma Theater 
they they got into virtual space and they figured out how to create, I almost call it a third form of performance because what theater did, what theater attempted to do in terms of being being seen in on television or in, in films is they would get five cameras in the theater and shoot whatever show was on stage, edit it and put it on TV or put it in the movie theater with the hopes that people would come see it or enjoy it. Um, not exactly what opera was doing, but attempting something similar. Yeah. It was very expensive and it did not necessarily, it does not necessarily always attract viewers. But what they had done is it was a form of producing plays in a way that was on location, but still the acting was, it had the qualities of stage acting versus the qualities of film acting. And that was exceptional as well. And they also were consistent about it. We have focused mostly on the U.S. How is theater faring internationally? I'm glad you asked. I'm, <laughs> I serve on the International Theater Institute's Executive Council, and I've been more in contact with my colleagues around the world than ever before because of the pandemic and because of the quick adoption of virtual meetings. So I'm, what I can say is that in some markets, like in London, for example, theater is back. Um, I, I think that theater is, it, with the restrictions on travel, which will be removed in November, I think that audiences are not as large as they might have been, especially where uh, in communities where tourism is what drives theater sales. But there's theater all over the world, and it's not all commercial, and it's not all even set up the way our nonprofit theater structures are. And they've, they've all been extremely creative during this time of being virtual, uh, living in virtual space, producing virtual festivals. I think they're very anxious to get back to being live in cases where they're not. But it's been tough. The challenges have been very similar across the globe and this, this pandemic united us. That's great to hear. And it's also great to hear a bit about how TCG is adapting to this new world. And thank you, Teresa, for making time today. It was my pleasure. We've been speaking today with Teresa Eyring, Executive Director and CEO of Theater Communications Group. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping.